you have your New Testament with you, you can be turning to the second chapter of the book of Galatians. The lesson tonight is going to be in some ways a sequel to our study from uh, last night. <clears throat> for those of you who were here last night, thank you for being here this evening on a cold, wet Tuesday evening. There are lots of things that are competing for our time and attention and for our affections in this world. And uh, the very fact that you would take the time to come here on a night like this says something about who you are. It says something about what you value. It says something about what, what's important to you in life. It says something about your care and concern for others. But most of all, it says something about your attitude toward God. And I, I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate you being here and appreciate so much. The invitation that's been extended to me to come and engage in this series of studies with you. It's been a very enjoyable week. And uh, I thank all of you for your kindness and your hospitality and the good things that we are sharing in together. This, this life is brief at best. The psalmist said three score and ten years, maybe even by reason of strength, four score years. In, in comparison with eternity, uh, it's a blip on the screen doesn't last very long. Our, our days are short. It's important for us to make the most of the time that we have. And when we have occasion to be with those who love the Lord, and we can encourage one another, we can sing together and pray together and study together. There's nothing sweeter and nothing more precious for the children of God. And there's nothing that ought to lift our souls and encourage us any more than occasions like this. And so, for however uh, dark and cold and ugly it may be on the outside tonight in this inclement weather, what a wonderful thing for us to bask in the warmth and the joy of the Lord in, in an assembly like, like this tonight. Well... In Galatians, the second chapter, we're talking about truth tonight and the importance of defending truth. Let me go back to the very beginning and just remind you, when God created this world and He created man and woman and placed them in the garden, God said from the very beginning that we are going to make man in our own image. And from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God indicated that there is something special, there's something unique, there is something that differentiates man from every other created thing. We're living in a world that's terribly confused about that. We, we don't know the difference between uh, a spotted owl or a seal and, and a man or a woman created in the image of God. I want to say to parents and grandparents, we, we, we have a lot of work in front of us. To overcome cultural conditioning that's going on all, all around us. But one of, the, one of the most fundamental things that we need to impress on the minds and the hearts of our children is that, that people are special. That mankind, humankind are different from every other kind. And the reason is because we're created in the image of God, and in that we are to reflect the very nature and character of God in our lives. And in particular, 
we're going to be reminded both under the old covenant and the new that in reflecting the nature of God, God wanted us to reflect the purity and holiness that defines his very being. And so Peter is going to say to those Christians who are living in the context of the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, Be ye holy, saith the Lord, for I am holy. Someone says, well, why, why is it that Christians must live a life that is morally distinct it's different from all of those around it is because we are reflecting the very nature and character of god in the way that we are living our lives that distinction of character that distinction of life ought to be seen in our moral purity But we are also going to find out as we read about God's relationship with his people and giving them the law and then the coming of the Christ and the message of the good news of the gospel, that that uniqueness, that purity is supposed to be seen also, not just in the morality by which we live our lives, but also in doctrinal purity, that is, in the truth that we embrace, the truth that we espouse, the truth that lives within us, that defines who we are and how we're going to live our lives. God expects His people not only to live morally pure lives, but He expects His people to to be doctrinally pure. We have a great responsibility to reflect God's holy character in doctrine, and in morality. You know, for example, that in the Old Testament, there were some great men of God who at times in their lives lost their focus for the moment. And morally speaking, they fell. Such was the case with King David in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is addressing a situation in the church in Corinth. And Paul is absolutely outraged. He is, he is reacting with passion regarding the situation that is going on in the church in Corinth in that they have among them a brother who is openly living with his father's wife and the church is behaving in a way that is very smug regarding that situation. And Paul is saying to them, it is unthinkable that you would tolerate this among you. Not even the Gentiles, not not even those who make no claim to know God to honor God, to be in a covenant relationship with God, uh, to be reflecting the character of God. They would not even tolerate that level of behavior. And yet, you have someone among you who has taken his father's wife, and you are not even reacting to that. And Paul said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and you ought to understand something here. 
This is not about me. It's not about you. It's, it, it is not about what someone's personal preference is or, or whose friend got their feelings hurt about. This is about God. This is about the name of God. This is about the character of God. This is about the reputation of God. And I think sometimes among the people of God, we quickly digress. When it comes to discussions of moral and doctrinal purity, we quickly digress and forget that the crux of the discussion is about the very nature and character of God himself. Was Albert Muller who said just recently in an article that he wrote that the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. He's writing about evangelicals, uh, the evangelical community in particular. But, but I'm saying to you the principle holds that he said that the reality is in the culture in which we're living, those who are professing to be followers of Christ are failing miserably along this line. It was James Twitchell who wrote that, that this mantra of uh, when Jesus said to the woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery and, and, and the hypocrites were standing around waiting to see what Jesus would do with this situation. Jesus said to the woman, go and sin no more. And Twitchell said, that's been replaced in our generation with judge not, lest you be not judged. I'm saying to you, as you look in Galatians chapter 2, as we noted last night, the Apostle Paul has gone up to the church in Jerusalem. He has taken with him Barnabas and Titus. Titus, who was a Greek, and Paul is saying regarding this question of circumcision, he is saying, what I'm being charged with is not true. There are some who are saying that I am teaching a different gospel. I am not. There is one gospel. There is one truth. Paul said, quite frankly, I I marvel that there are some who are so quickly removing from the gospel of Christ unto a different gospel, which is not another gospel at all, only there are some among you who trouble you. There's only one gospel. And, And though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel. Paul said, I want to tell you, I went up to Jerusalem, I took Titus with me, And even the apostles did not compel Titus to be circumcised. Do not say, do not say that Peter is teaching one gospel and I am teaching another gospel and that it's not the same for everybody. Truth is truth. And when I went to Jerusalem, Paul said, I am telling you that every apostle of Jesus Christ was standing firmly on one and the same truth. And circumcision is not part of the covenant of Christ. And no one compelled Titus to be circumcised. 
And they gave to me the right hand of fellowship. This, this conflict, this doctrinal conflict was serious for them. Because it had to do with the very question of salvation in Christ. It, it, it addressed the fundamental issue of how it is that we appropriate the grace of God that was expressed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It cut to the very heart of it. And in that sense, it differed from the, uh, uh, from the question of the eating of meats. And, and, and Paul is saying, look, th- there are some things. There are some things that may be points of discussion, especially regarding the background that you come from. But when it comes to this question of salvation and whether or not circumcision is required by God as a condition for salvation, there can be, there can be no difference on this. There is one gospel. That's, that's all. But I'll tell you what was happening. Are you in Galatians chapter 2? We're going to begin in verse 11. We read this last night. We're going back there. And we want to make just two or three points about this tonight. Paul said, but when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I resisted him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Before that certain ones came down from James... He ate with the Gentiles. Let, let me pause here and remind you if, you, if, if you remember in Acts chapter 11, the, the Apostle Paul had joined with Barnabas in Antioch, which was the first Gentile church, a church made up primarily of Gentile converts. And, and at some point, Peter came. And Paul said, everything was fine. And before certain ones came down from Jerusalem, from James, Peter ate with the Gentiles. That is to say, he made no distinction. In the body of Christ, a Christian is a Christian is a Christian. There was no distinction made regarding Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. No distinction. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. That, that was the distinction. You were saved or you were lost. You were a Christian or you were not a Christian. You were in the body of Christ or you were outside the body of Christ. That was the distinction. But, Paul said, but when they came, that is the Judaizers came down from Jerusalem, when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself Fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews dissembled likewise with him. Insomuch that even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand? Barnabas was the preacher who had gone there first. He was the one who was preaching the gospel there in Antioch. 
Barnabas was the one who was baptizing those Gentile converts. That is no small statement when Paul says, Peter's behavior was such that it it not only disturbed and, and caused confusion for the other Jews who were Christian, it caused confusion for Barnabas, and he followed with Peter in making a distinction. And now he would no longer eat with the Christians who were Gentiles because they were uncircumcised. And Paul said, when I saw that they did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. I want you to underline that word truth. That is the essence of what is at stake here. And when you see Paul throwing down the gauntlet, that is to say, when you see Paul drawing the line in the sand, when you see him planting his feet, ready to do battle, you can be sure that it has something to do with truth. When I saw, Paul said, that they did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Cephas before all of them, that is, in the presence of all of them, if thou being a Jew livest as do the Gentiles and not as do, and not as do the Jews, how do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? What hypocrisy, Paul said. Paul said, I confronted Peter to his face and I did it publicly in front of everybody. And I said, how can you possibly... How can you possibly be teaching that there is one body of Jesus Christ, but there are two dining rooms and the Jews and the Gentiles can't eat together? How can you possibly say that the blood of Jesus Christ What was the epitome of the atoning work of God in taking away the sins of the world and then turn right around and say, but but it's necessary uh, to have this sign of the flesh of circumcision if you want to really be saved. If you want to be a real Christian, you got to be circumcised. How can you do that, Peter? You're not living by the law. You're not living as a Jew. You're not following the covenant of... How can you compel the Gentiles to do that? And I want you to note what's really the tragedy of this. Peter was a man of influence. He was a man of tremendous influence. Up until this point, in the church in Antioch, the Christians behaved as a family of God, as the body of Christ, as a congregation of God's people. 
When Peter arrived in Antioch, though he was a Jew by birth, as was the Apostle Paul, as would have been the case for some others there, in the body of Christ, there was no distinction made regarding Jew and Gentile. There was no distinction made regarding circumcised or uncircumcised. This was about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. When Peter arrived there, he was one in Christ with all the saints. They sang together, they prayed together, they ate the supper of the Lord together, they studied the word of God together, they broke their bread from house to house together. They were one in Christ until certain ones came down from Jerusalem. And Peter immediately, because of the peer pressure, we might say, of the Judaizers who had showed up from Jerusalem, knowing how they felt, he withdrew himself from the Gentile Christians and would no longer eat with them. And when Peter did that, the other Christians who were of Jewish heritage began to follow his lead. I want to say something to you, ladies and gentlemen. What you do matters. It matters for you. But it matters for everybody else who is going to be influenced by you. It matters for everybody who is watching you. Are you a mother in the home? You have some children who are watching you. What you do matters. Are you a father? Do you have children at home? Let me say to you, what you say in front of your children matters. How you talk matters. What you prioritize, it matters. Now, I'll tell you something, moms and dads. You can say all the things you want to say, but I'm telling you this without hesitation. Your kids know what is really important to you in that home. They know. They know what's going to get your reaction faster than anything. They know what is next to your heart more than anything. They know what is going to matter in that house. They know. You can say the right thing, but if the reality is something else, they know. I'll tell you how it was with Peter. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was raised as a Jew all of his life as a Jew. He understood the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And he understood how that distinction should be shown. 
When he became a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter was the one who baptized Cornelius. Peter was the one who went back to Jerusalem and defended that in Acts chapter 11 in the presence of the apostles. How could we deny him who had received the Holy Spirit even as we did from the beginning? Peter was the one who had done all that. And now Peter is the one who is suddenly terribly inconsistent between what he's preaching and what he's practicing And the end result is, others followed his lead. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, it matters. It matters when spiritual leaders are saying the wrong thing. It matters. And it matters when spiritual leaders are doing the wrong thing. And somebody says, well, that's his problem. Listen to me. It is his problem. But others are going to be spiritually affected by his problem. The Apostle Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord that he purchased with his own blood. Because I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you. The presbytery, the episcopate, the elders, and from among your own selves, from the leadership Men are going to rise up speaking perverse things. And what's the end result? That's their problem. No. Drawing away disciples after them. Others are going to be affected. That's exactly what happened in Antioch. Paul said... The reality is Peter was not acting in line. Are you looking at verse 14? And when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Orthopodeo. Straight to be in line, orthopedic, orthopedics. You get it? Peter's behavior was out of line with the truth. He did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. It's the same word. In a variant form that's used in Galatians 6, I think, in verse 1. When Paul said, Brethren, even if one among you is overtaken in a trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of meekness, thinking about yourself, lest you also be... Peter's hypocrisy was a compromise of truth. And his behavior was out of line with truth. And Paul's response to that in defending truth, his response to that was a public 
confrontation. One apostle confronting another. Why? Because truth had been compromised. What were some of the first words off the pen of the Apostle Paul in this letter? He said, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach unto you any other gospel other than that which you received from the beginning, let him be accursed. The truth had been compromised. Five things I want to say to you about this tonight. When we think about the tremendous responsibility we have as it pertains to truth. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, let's let's remember that no one is infallible. No matter how loved, no matter how many years, no matter how close to our family he or she may be, no one is infallible. When the gospel was brought to Berea, do you remember what those folks did? They received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the Scriptures daily to see whether or not those things were so. Isn't that amazing? The Word being brought to them by by an apostle of Christ. and, And what did they do? They went to the book. They opened the Scriptures. They examined the Word to see whether or not these things were so. It is essential. It is essential if we're going to be a people of truth that we understand this principle. Truth is determined not on the basis of who is saying it, Truth is determined on the basis of whether or not it is found in the book. That is the first question. Can you read it in the Word of God? Can you find it in the Word of God? Can you show me in the book that this is the truth of God? It doesn't have anything to do with, well, you don't trust me. It's not about whether or not I trust you. Because truth is not about you. It's about God. It emanates from God. It is the Word of God. It is the truth of God. And let's turn to the book to determine whether or not something is true, regardless of who is saying it. Secondly... Personal relationships cannot be allowed to supersede truth. When Jesus walked on the earth as he was mentoring his twelve, he he understood so well, (laughs) as he would, he is God. 
He understood so well the challenges that were in front of them. And he understood so well the challenges that other disciples were going to face in their quest for the kingdom. And so he's, he said to them on occasion, do you have this idea that the kingdom of God is all about holding hands and holding flowers and basking in the rays of the sun? Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? I came not to bring peace, but a sword. To set a man at variance against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are going to become those of his own household. Ladies and gentlemen, let me, let me remind you of something that Jesus understood so well 2,000 years ago. Blood is thick. People say, yeah, you know that expression, blood is thicker than water. Listen to me carefully, folks. Jesus said, blood cannot be allowed to be thicker than truth. You hear me? Blood cannot be allowed to trump truth. Personal relationships, family relationships, close relationships, mentor relationships cannot be allowed to supersede truth. And so Jesus said, I want to tell you what the gospel is going to do. It's going to, at times, separate some of the closest and dearest relationships in your life because truth trumps relationships. And you need to know, Jesus said, that the person who loves father, mother, son, or daughter, the person who values the relationship more than the truth is not worthy to be my disciple. Wow. In theory, that sounds challenging. Where do you get a taste of it in practice? It will cut to the heart. Of your soul. Thirdly, we see in this situation in Antioch when Paul had to defend truth regarding the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Sin that has affected everyone is addressed with everyone. And that's exactly what had happened in this church. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth? They were, they were tolerating, they were accommodating sin in that church in a very 
public way. And everybody knew it. And Paul said, here's what you ought to do. In the name of our Lord Jesus, you being gathered together. This is something that affects the whole church. And as you deal with it, the whole church needs to understand the truth regarding this problem. When churches have problems, morally or doctrinally, that have affected the whole, it's an egregious mistake. To try to privately and singularly, quietly address the problem. But why? Not because, not because of any desire to inflict pain. That's, that's not what it's about. It is about the establishment of spiritual health and the communication of spiritual truth to every part of the body that has been tainted by the leaven. In dealing with truth, Paul is insisting, in dealing with truth, consistency matters. If you're going to preach that there is one body, then brother, you better practice that. Don't be, don't be standing up preaching the sermon, there is one body in Christ, and then immediately stepping out of the pulpit and behaving as if there are two different zones here. That doesn't work. And it's not right. In dealing with the truth, consistency matters. In Antioch, Paul was consistent. Peter was not. And Paul called him out on it. And he called him out on it because it mattered. It was a salvation issue that mattered and it was affecting the whole. And truth sometimes demands the clear and unequivocal, thou art the man. Just as Nathan said to David, just as Daniel said to the Babylonian king, thou art the man. Thou art the one. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man, David. <laughs> we take that expression and we, we've made it something good. You know, you're playing on a team sport and you make the goal, you make the points, you, you make the play. And somebody said, You're the man. A good thing. In the Bible, when somebody said, You're the man, it, chances are it wasn't good.
In Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, Titus, one of the reasons I, I left you in Crete was to set in order the things that are lacking. To appoint elders in every church. Among other things, these, these elders are supposed to hold fast to the faithful word. We're talking about truth here. The word of God. Which is according to the teaching that he may be able to exhort and sound doctrine and to convict the gainsayers. And why is that important? Because, he said in verse 10, because there are many unruly men who are vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Men who overthrow entire houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Sometimes, Paul said, Sometimes it is absolutely necessary to call out the gainsayer, to identify the man, to make clear the teaching that is causing disturbance in the body of Christ and to deal with it in defense of truth and in view of the unity of the body of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this mandate, this call to unity in truth, to the defense of truth, this biblical call related to truth is as countercultural in our time as it can possibly be. It, it, it does not resonate well with the politically correct ideology of the day. And for that reason, the coming generation is going to be more and more susceptible to problems that result from a failure to stand on truth, to unite in truth, to defend truth, and to proclaim truth. But our privilege and our blessing tonight is to be in the company of a host of men and women whose lives and hearts have been committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Who, who are living lives in demonstration of moral and doctrinal truth. Who are instilling in the minds and the hearts of their children the importance of truth. 
Our blessing and privilege tonight is to be together with those who embrace truth as a value that is precious and noble. To encourage each other, to strengthen one another, to lift each other up, and to help one another in our quest for heaven. We sing the song sometimes, it won't be very long till this short life shall end. Won't be long. I'll tell you who's precious in the sight of the Lord. It's his people, his saints. And I'll tell you who's precious in the sight of Christians. It's their brothers and sisters who day by day are fighting the battles. They're making the journey. They're living the life. They're holding up the banner of the cross. They're going home. And what a privilege to have the opportunity to help one another get to heaven. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful day that will be. When all of God's children get home. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, won't you come in obedience to the gospel? If you have never given your life in submissive obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, would you tonight, with faith in your heart, with a penitent attitude towards sin, would you not be united with the Lord this very night in baptism into Christ? And if you're a child of God and you need to come home, Tonight, would you come? While we stand and sing, we invite you.